Captain King's original ranch that he called the Rancho de Santa Gertrudis, not King Ranch. It wasn't King Ranch until after Captain King died. It was Rancho de Santa Gertrudis, uh, was about 68,500 acres. The reason that he was so attracted to that piece of land was because there was a spring-fed creek that ran right through that Spanish land grant, the, uh, the De La Garza, and it was the only fresh water, you gotta, you gotta put, put your head around this, from Corpus Christi to Brownsville. Wow. 140 miles. It was the only fresh water in that entire stretch wow. of land. That, that part of Texas at that time was called the Desert of the Dead. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your co-host, Michael Moore, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Bob Wirma. Bob, how are you doing today? Good. How about you, Michael? Doing good down here in Texas. I am excited about today's podcast host. Uh, Bob Canan first came to my attention because one of our partners, uh, Bob Wirma, Joe Mundy, is actually his son-in-law, and he told me about Bob, and immediately, like we always see in Texas, uh, the world became very small. Bob knows my grandfather very well, uh, and he started out his career uh, finishing up ranch management school at TCU here in Fort Worth, and then went on to manage the famous Wynn Ranch in Kaufman County, Texas, before beginning his work at the King Ranch, which is something we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today. So, Bob, welcome to The Climb. Thank you, sir, Bob and Michael. I appreciate y'all having me on. Glad to be here today. Absolutely. So, Bob, before we dive into the King Ranch and what I'd, I'd term as the importance of legacy, let's just talk about you a little bit. Where are you from? Where were you born? What makes you tick? Well, I'm I'm a, I'm a city boy. I was I was born in Austin, raised in Austin. Graduated from the Big Austin High School, went to the University of Texas. Okay. Uh, had a wonderful storybook life in the fifties. Growing up in in uh, West Austin on Lake Austin, and fishing and hunting and playing baseball and golf and basketball with all my my friends in in the neighborhood. Just had a great time and made it through a couple of years at the University of Texas before I realized that. Uh, that I just I just really wasn't cut out to be a, a a student and was ready to to find some greener pastures so to speak. So the circumstances around my father had a lot of acquaintances in South Texas and and uh, when he saw that I was I was uh, floundering and, and looking for for uh, for something else to to do, he said, "Why don't you go think about it in South Texas with some of my friends that are ranching down there?" And I said, "Well, that sounds like a good idea." And I I uh, I took uh, I, I took off from Austin and and went to went to Dilly, Texas, which is in the in the middle of the Winter Garden area in South Texas, and and worked for a wonderful family down there, the Avant family. Uh, with with all good intention to come back and finish school uh, after getting getting that uh, drifting life out of my system, uh, so I was down there for about six months before I realized that uh, that my time probably ought to be up and I'll be heading back to the city. And and my daddy called me and said, "Son, are you about ready to come back and and uh, go back to school?" And I said, "No, sir. I I, I think I'm going to study." And that's just what I did. 
uh, stage. So that was that was in the uh, early 1970s, and I I wandered around South Texas pretty much as an itinerant cowboy. Worked on some some big ranches throughout the country. Worked for the Callahan Land and Pastoral Company on the river. Uh, worked in in Beeville for Jack Ryan and Dale Robertson, and worked a lot of lease country over there. Uh, spent about about three years just just uh, just living that life and enjoying it. Met my future wife, fell in love, determined that uh, I needed to I needed to get get my feet back under me in a little bit different way. So I I determined to go to the TCU to the ranch management program, which I went to and I graduated from in 1976. Married my wife. Uh, after graduation, and uh, promptly was was hired by Toddy Lee Wynn and American Liberty Oil Company to to, uh, to work on their ranches headquartered in Kaufman, Texas, as you you related to the Wynn Ranches, which was known as Star Brand Cattle Company, had ranches in in uh, East Texas and and uh, ranch Matagorda Island. I, I worked my my way up to uh, general manager and eventually president of of uh, Star Brand Cattle Company and. And uh, stayed there for 26 years. Raised three daughters in Kaufman. Lived a great life. Things things started to uh, disintegrate, so to speak. The 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 family. I was working for the third generation of family members in in Kaufman, and their interests weren't weren't in in the ranching business so much. And and uh, just by just by chance, I, I received a letter. Uh, don't mean to bore you with the details, but it was Not kind of interesting. I received a letter from a headhunter. I didn't know what a headhunter was, but you know they were inquiring about my interest in going to work for a for a large ranch in South Texas, and and I I really just just threw the the letter on the on the back of my desk and didn't think about it anymore. And then about three weeks later, I had a call from from the headhunter and said, "Did you receive our letter?" And I said, "Well, I'm not sure, but." Yeah, I recall I did, and I picked it up, and I said, "You know, I, I know a lot about about South Texas." I said, I, "I said you said it's a large ranch. What ranch is it?" And they said, "Well, it's King Ranch." And I said, "Well, I do know King Ranch." So uh, they said, "Would you be interested in interviewing for a position that they have available?" And I, I said, I, "I might," and and I I did. Soon after that, uh, my wife and I made the decision to uh, to move to South Texas, and I, I went to work in in 2002 for uh, for King Ranch, and uh, just again, Bob, like we talked about for for everyone's information, what King Ranch is. King Ranch is is uh, uh, at this point in time an 825,000 acre cattle ranch on the uh, coastal plains. In an area we call the Wild Horse Desert of South Texas, it's 170 years old. It's owned by, and it's now in its eighth generation of family uh, ownership. It's one of the largest, small percentage of of uh, family owned businesses that have been around for as many years as they have. 100% owned by family members. All descendants of uh, Captain. Uh, Richard King and Henrietta King. So I went to work for King Ranch in, in 2002 as uh, not in ranching. I, I, I threw my saddle back up on the on the hook and and uh, started riding that chair and went to work uh, <laughs> as general manager 
of King Ranch Hospitality and Community Affairs. Well, that's a that's a long title for I just did whatever came my way. And, and <laughs> King Ranch, if you do halfway a good job, then generally they they pile more on you, just like they do in a lot of places. So through my career with King Ranch, I, I managed a, a entity called the Santa Gertrudis Heritage Society, which is the shareholder affairs. Uh, manages the uh, the historic assets on the ranch. I uh, manage the King Ranch Museum. I manage the King Ranch uh, Tourist Center. I manage King Ranch Archives. I, I wore a lot of hats and did a lot of things and, until I retired from the ranch in, in 2016. And at that time, uh, they they honored me by asking me to stay on as, as a consulting historian for the ranch, which I am today. I, I do continue in that position today. So it's been a it's been a twenty plus year run with King Ranch, and and uh, it's it's been a great experience, and and just caps off a, a great life that I've had. And Bob, to put in a little plug, and we'll include it in the show notes. I recently went on to Amazon.com and bought this beautiful book, King Ranch: A Legacy in Art, which you had a huge part in uh, not only pulling together, but promoting. So I definitely recommend anybody interested in a deep dive on the King Ranch to pick this book up. Bob, before we really start diving in to the importance and the history and just the myth around this magical place known as the King Ranch, Bob Weirman and I would be very remiss if we didn't take the opportunity to poke a little fun at our partner, Joe Mundy. What is he like as a son-in-law? I can tell you what he's like to work with, but what is he like as a son-in-law? <laughs> well, he's, uh, do you, the, the good part is he's damn sure dedicated to his job. I mean, he, he, he loves what he does. And, you know, obviously a second generation insurance guy. Well, That's right. Uh, you know, I think that, I think that Joey's greatest claim to fame is that, is that, uh, he made sure that my daughter Caroline graduated from the University of Kansas, because if she uh, if she was a little bit challenged like I was in, in academics, she she struggled. And Joey wanted to make sure that she stayed at Kansas and didn't didn't have me bring her back home to Kingsville. So uh, <laughs> he tutored her, and I guess through all that tutoring, they fell in love and. <laughs> up jumped the devil they got married but uh and they got married down at the ranch we had a wonderful wedding uh on king ranch but uh uh joey is one of of uh my three son-in-laws i have three daughters three beautiful daughters caroline joey's wife is is my youngest daughter Catherine, and and uh and Catherine's husband steve is also a lockton uh, i was uh, just gonna go there i have a lot more dirt on him than joey <laughs> There's a lot we, more dirt to be had. If you say Steve, I'd have to get off the phone because it's not, <laughs> we, can, we can't go there. <laughs> but you know, so I've got a, I've got a, a double legacy in Lockton, and then, and then uh, my my third son-in-law is is uh, in a milder business. It, I guess it used to be he's a banker, but I don't know if he's a banker today or not. You never can tell with the way, the way things are going now. But, well, that's true. Anyway, a lot no, to unpack I, there. Well. God, just having to put up with Steve and Joey, um, we're impressed. You've got you've got tough skin, and obviously have have guided them well. In, in all seriousness, we couldn't ask. No, for, it means it means two his daughters partners. have tough skin. Well, that too. Well, they do. And, and, I, and I'll tell you, what, 
the only thing that I can tell you is they're they're mighty good boys and very respectful and and honest to goodness. They still they will not call me Bob. They still call me Mister Canaan. And I and, and and you know I don't know what that means. Maybe it means they think I'm just an old man, but otherwise I think they do it out of great respect for me, and yeah. I appreciate that. That's great. Well, and I wanted and I wanted to dig in. I was going to ask you know you talked about growing up in Austin in the 50s and i'd love to get your perspective on what you've seen transpire there over the years i mean that place has drastically changed i can only imagine how it was back when you were you were growing up there oh it was it was it was a you know it was a wonderful place to live i i, I you know it was uh, it was a it was a small city a small town it was a university town and 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 obviously when the when the uh legislature was was in session it got busy but otherwise you know we were we'd ride our bikes to downtown we we play in the in the halls of the capitol we we spent you know all day running up and down the drag having fun it was just a great place and and through a great series of 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 massive uh, mistakes austin has become what it is today and i think that, you know <laughs> uh, for the for the sake of of uh of growth or, or whatever they wanted to happen. Well, this happened, you know, don't wish what, what you, you know, don't wish something on you. You don't want to happen. But, but I still have a, uh, a niece and, and, and nephew that live in Austin. I still have, uh, lots of friends in Austin and, and, you know, it, it's, it, it's my, it's my hometown, but, uh, I can tell you this, I, I, I only go because I have to, not because I want to. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's changed a lot. I, I don't know if you read that Texas Monthly article about uh, about kind of the the uh, how Austin has changed and where it is now. And Texas Monthly doing a little mea culpa on on you know some of the some of the promotions everyone had about Austin. Well, now look what's happened. But it, it's uh, it, it's it's the capital city and and uh, of Texas, but uh, it, it's kind of an outsider culture there. But. That's neither here nor there. I'm, yeah, they, I'm, I, I got out when the getting was good. Bob, they accept people like me in Austin. They'll let me down there. But, you know, I go in Fort Worth and Michael just makes fun of me the whole time because I'm a, you know, I'm a city boy from Chicago. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm living in Mountain Home, Texas, which is just just outside of Kerrville, Texas, yep. in the in the beautiful hill country. But we're 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 seeing a migration of, of uh, lots of lots of folks from from the Northeast and the West coast that are coming down into this area too. And, and, uh, it's just the nature of things. And, and, you know, we can't stop it. We, we can just hope that we can get them acclimated and, and, uh, and, and make them act like we do a little bit. I don't know if that's going to happen, but we're trying. Bob, you know, you mentioned that time in Austin, uh, was was lion was lions municipal golf course because you mentioned oh, lake austin was, was that right about that time was that when it was getting really popular or talk about that a no lion no muni muni's been popular since oh gosh it's 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 been there forever but it was right. it was a five-minute walk you know and it was right next to my junior high school and i was i had a great group of friends that were still wonderful friends and one of my best friends and and uh was ben crenshaw and yeah and, you know, Ben and I would at Muni back in the day when we were when we were in in sixth, seventh, eighth grade. You know, we play out at Austin, the old Austin Country Club, but also Muni would let the juniors. We would we would pay. I think we would pay thirty dollars a year for a for a golf membership, a junior golf membership at Muni, 
and they would let us keep our bags there in the little locker. And and so we went to Old Henry Junior High, which is right across the street from yeah. Union. And we would just after school, Ben and Charlie and I, we we would all just jump the fence and go play Muni. But Muni is is, uh, you know, it, it was it was just a, a a walk, and that was our playground too. And and damn it, the University of Texas has been trying to grab that land back that they own. It's theirs, and and uh, turn it into some development. But but thanks to people like Ben and Scott Sayers and and some of those great guys in Austin, they're working real hard to, to let that thing stay around as a, it's one of the oldest communities in the, in the United States. First, first integrated public golf course in the United States. It's, it's a, it has an incredible history and it's just a wonderful track. It was our playground. Well, Bob, that may be a really good transition because, um, you know, I, it, it just, it pleases me to know in to get videos from my nephew, who's trying to learn to play, to play golf a little bit and his lessons are out there at lions. And so that's probably the, I don't know, third or fourth generation of our family to play lions. And back when you were talking about that, the possibility of developing it. My dad and his wife lived just up the street from there on Eighth Avenue, right off of West Austin uh, Boulevard or Lake Austin Boulevard, and they were really worried about that development. Now, I wouldn't have changed things for for anything because it got them up here to Fort Worth, and we got to spend a bunch of wonderful years with them here in Fort Worth. But to that point, it hasn't been developed. And I think that's one of the most amazing things about the preservation of the King Ranch is we see all the influx of people coming into Texas that this ranch has just continued to build, not retract over the years. And so maybe just give us a little insight into your views of the legacy of the King Ranch and its importance, because 825,000 acres for those that are not familiar with what that really means. That's the size of some states up in the northeastern part of the United States. Yeah, it's about the size of Rhode Island. Right. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, and you're you're right, Michael. I think the 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 sad note that you're saying is the is the is the demise of the of the legacy ranches, the great legacy ranches, primarily in West Texas. Uh, yep. Uh, Matadors, Swensons, uh, Four Sixes, they've been sold. To a great degree, they're still intact, but that but that ranching culture that that and 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 those original owners are not a part of it. So, if some tech billionaire from from San Francisco buys one of them and and maintains it in in some semblance of what it was before, uh, it's not what it was before. I'm sorry, it just it doesn't carry that that same that that same cultural significance. And I think that that that's one thing that that made those great legacy ranches and made King Ranch what it is. And that's, and that is a culture of its own. Bob, are you, Um, are you seeing that these ranches that you mentioned that are sold, are they keeping them as ranches or are there bigger plans with buying those large tracts of land? Well, you know, when you talk about a ranch that's, that's three to 500,000 acres, it's, it's hard to, and it's out in the middle of basically what you would consider Bob is nowhere. Right. Uh, you know, there's really not a whole lot of other to do with it than, than an agricultural operation. Now, obviously, today we've got we've got 
all all sorts of of, of solar opportunities and, and and water opportunities that they that, that they deal with, but. But primarily, these these legacy ranches are being bought by very very wealthy individuals uh, or corporations that are that are able to use them for their recreation and and obviously for their investment because I mean we're you know land land is not a bad investment in this day and time and, and uh, certainly in the quantity in the in the the largest of those properties. Uh, it, it's just unbelievable how much land has been acquired here in the last four years and, and, and still in production to a certain degree. But again, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's the good news. The bad news is, is, again, you lose a little something when when you sell off those those wonderful old sure. ranches. And 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 uh, to, to, to think, I think that to just think about a, a cattle ranching operation that can go through eight generations in the same family, 170 years in operation. And, and, and I mean, to, to sit here and try to talk about King Ranch and the ups and downs and the transitions and, the, and, and how close they came to doing this or how close they came to doing that, you, it, it's just remarkable to see that this, this family has been able to hold uh, this ranch together for that long. And, and they've done it because they understand uh, the foundation that was built by their great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, great-great-great-grandfather, and great-great-great-great-grandfather. So these people, you know, we've got now uh, in that eight generations, there's still five living generation family members that are involved. The eighth generation just just came to be. They're just Mm -hmm. baby eighth generation members now. Just to put it in, in context, the the fifth the fifth generation we just lost our our last fourth generation family member, uh, Helen Clayburg Groves. Helenita Groves died recently in San Antonio. She she was in her nineties. She was a wonderful lady. She was the she was the daughter of Bob Clayburg, who was president and general manager of King Ranch for fifty years. But the fifth generation family members that now are the main operators of the ranch and the sixth generation. The fifth generation are my age guys. Mm-hmm. They're in their sixties, uh, seventies, uh, some in their eighties. Uh, the sixth generation are are my children's age. So they're the, they're you know they're they're in their they're in their thirties, forties, and fifties. So that's that's the really the makeup. And, and then when you talk about the seventh generation, I mean they're not they're not there yet. But uh, it's it's a remarkable study in in, in how to how to hold a family together. When, when, when so much can go wrong all around you all the time. And, and, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a delicate balance and they, and they've been able to, to, uh, to, you know, manage that balancing act. Just kind of giving the, the listeners some historical context. So I think I have this right. You're the historian, Bob. So jump in here and correct my facts, but uh, Captain Richard King was born in about 1824. Correct. And purchased at least the first portion of the King Ranch in 1853, which would make him 29 years old, give or take. So for just the 29-year-old listeners out there, now, of course, life expectancy was a lot different back then. I think he, he passed away when he was about 60 or so. To be making those types of decisions and have the life 
capabilities already at that age to start making these land play moves to me is just fascinating because most 29 year olds I know today are still trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And he certainly had a, a vision and a plan. Uh, most importantly, probably marrying his wife, Henrietta, and we'll kind of get into that, that story as well. But just talk about that a little bit, Bob. Well, I think the most remarkable story of Richard King is that not only was he a young man when he came to Texas and, and, and started in, in, in the business, but he was he was essentially an orphan. Mm-hmm. He was born in he was born in New York City. We know little more about him until he was 11 years old, besides being born in New York City. We know that he was born of, of uh, Irish immigrants. Uh, we don't know when they left the, the picture. We think that probably they either died or went someplace else when he was five years old. And possibly, although we don't know much about this, he, he didn't talk about it, he didn't write it down. He, he could have had an aunt that, that adopted him or at least was his guardian for some years. By the time he was nine, he was given over to a jeweler as a jeweler's apprentice. Uh, and that's a nice way of saying that he was he was an indentured slave. Mm-hmm. Uh, he worked for this jeweler on the on the uh, uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan until he was 11 years old and just about had his belly full, obviously. And he stole away on a on a merchant ship bound for Mobile Bay. About halfway down the water, he was discovered. They, they would not generally have, have treated a stowaway as, as nicely as they did Richard King, but I think his tenacity and grit probably convinced the captain to make him uh, his, his uh, cabin cub, his, his cabin boy. And he did. And, and Captain King went on to, uh, to begin his career in, as, as a merchant uh, seaman. Uh, he was, he was uh, given a, a captain's license when he was 19 years old. He was, uh, he was uh, uh, meandering up the Mississippi and, and uh, in, 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 the, in the waters of, uh, of Florida. He was, he was a, uh, uh, a captain on a steamship uh, during the Seminole War in Florida. Went back to, uh, to the uh, Mississippi and... Uh, by virtue of a friend that he had made in the, in, during the Seminole War, a Quaker, another ship captain by the name of Mifflin Kennedy, who had gone to Texas to uh, join the uh, uh, the Army's efforts in the Mexican War on the border, uh, Captain King went over there and joined him. He came to Texas in 1847. Uh, he went to work for the Quartermaster's Corps, which is the group that took care of those those shipping efforts and the transportation during the war. He uh, he captained in a, a, a riverboat up and down the Rio Grande River from Laredo to uh, to the mouth of the of, of the Gulf of Mexico until the until the war was over in 1848. Bought a, a surplus. Army surplus uh, uh, riverboat went into business for himself. Uh, eventually, his his uh, his smarts and 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 his ability to to uh, navigate that that rough water uh, of the Rio Grande 
uh, he was he was taken in as a partner by by two men, Mifflin Kennedy again and Charles Stillman, who was a who was one of the early Anglo settlers of the on on in Brownsville. As a matter of fact, he was the founder of Brownsville. Lived in uh, he he uh, came to Matamoros, uh, Mexico, in 1824, and lived there. His father was a was a Yankee merchant. King fell into into this uh, this shipping business on the Rio Grande and it developed into a monopoly. They made a lot of money. Uh, they were they were the only business in town and there was lots of commerce up and down the Rio Grande. There was still lots of military action going on. Eventually he he had enough money and and uh, along with some of the other Anglo businessmen on the on the river they were they were looking for other adventures and other ventures to to go into and and one was was the ranching business mm -hmm. and uh that's what what took king north to corpus christi in 1852 and that's what took him to the santa Catrudis creek was is where the headquarters of, of king ranch is today but uh king was was uh was an opportunist he was a he was a businessman he was an adventurer he might have had six months of formal education. Uh, uh, he 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 knew he knew how to work with people. He was he was known as the quartermaster's friend. He was a good businessman. He knew how to develop partnerships and and, and develop uh, associates. But he was tough as nails. He was just he he was a little little Irishman that that. Uh, you know, made good and, and, and didn't know when to stop. He, he, he just, uh, he, he was just a remarkable, uh, individual that it's hard to imagine the life he lived. You know, we could sit here for the next three hours and just talk about what he accomplished in, 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 in his 60 years, his short 60 years living. But, you know, more, more importantly, the, the, what he left for his successors mm -hmm. after that, for his, succeeding generations of family members was was probably the greatest thing uh, henrietta king his wife was was his partner and and shared his vision and that vision was to to develop the ranch and develop a business and to build towns and, and to bring commerce and to south texas which they did uh, she was the daughter of the first protestant minister missionary that, that uh, started a church in brownsville in 1850 she was just about as as much of an opposite of Richard King as you could ever imagine. Father was a was a like I said a Presbyterian minister. Richard King probably had never seen the inside of a church. Talk about I'm that sorry. for a second because I think you know as, as we as as the podcast is called Crossroads in Defining Moments, like to to have the vision and the foresight when he died at 60 to leave everything to his wife was unheard of at that time. It's, it's unheard of in, in today's business dealings. In a lot of ways, you would have a bank in there, a trust or something like that. But I think that vision started a process where this was always going to remain in the family. And so maybe unpack that a little bit as it, as it's perpetuated out to eight generations now. You know, just start out by saying I think that's one of the successes of that, that is that that has made King Ranch it has made the longevity of King Ranch, and that's wonderful succession planning. 
which, you know, everybody talks about today. But I mean, when you talk about it in, in 1850, you're, you're that that's unknown. You just, you know, you might inherit something, you might not, what, whatever. But but I think King Ranch has been a, a, a has had a series of a very good um, uh, inheritance planning that they've done that's carried their business forward. And, and, and uh, along with a little bit of luck, that's that that goes a long way. His wife was his partner. His right, you know, his love, his, you know, the mother of his of his five children that he loved dearly. They they never wanted for anything because of his great love for him. He, he when when he died, there was no question that everything would go to her in her name. He said in his will, which was written on uh, written about about two weeks before he died in San Antonio written by his uh, future son-in-law, Robert Clayburgh, who was an attorney. He said uh, he would give everything that he had to his wife to be used and disposed of just the same way that he might do if he was still living. And that's, the, that's really all he said. Wow. It was hers to be done. Now, now I'll, I'll, I'll give you a caveat to that. King, when they loaded him up on the, on the wagon to go to San Antonio when he was mortally uh, ill, when he was when he was uh, dying of stomach cancer and, and could barely go on any further, he was still he was still giving instructions to his lawyer Stephen Powers to uh, buy land and never sell and keep buying more in the San Juan Carcitos, which was the which you know Michael is the Norius division of King Ranch. Yes, sir. And uh, his final dictate was was never let a foot of old Santa Gertrudis get away. That continues to be a, 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 a dedication that the family has. That 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 credo, that motto, that what Captain King said: don't don't let a, a foot of dear old Santa Gertrudis get away. They they've uh, they've held on to that philosophy. You know, hopefully they'll hold on to it for another eight generations. But uh, that's 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 very important. But yes, uh, they they were they were a partnership. There was no never any question that she wouldn't be the and she was until 1925 when she when she died at 92. She 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 was was King Ranch. Wow! And isn't it isn't it true, Bob? That is a a, a sign or or demonstration of her love and admira admiration for him she wore black every day after the day he died for the rest of her life she did i i, I think in in that old victorian style you know they you were in mourning for the rest of your life and she truly was she was dedicated to him and, and loved him dearly and and wore a wore a little gold locket she 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 wasn't ornamented very much she he he gave her a couple of big diamond studs as a as a gift when they were married and she she promptly took them to a jeweler and, and had them capped in, in, a, in a black onyx covering because she thought they were too ostentatious. And so she didn't wow. wear those diamonds. But uh, yeah, she, when he died, she wore gray or black. Uh, she was, she was uh, very proper, very quiet, very reserved, very pious, very religious. She, she wore this a little locket with a picture of Captain King. And that was really the only ornament that she had. Again, she outlived all of her children but one. Alice uh, King Clayburn mm -hmm. uh, lived until 1944. But uh, 
anyway, that was that was her only surviving child when she died. But a remarkable a remarkable woman and by her own right, a, a prosperous, generous, philanthropic. What she left her family members was was you know more than more than just money and land she she left him she left him with with a a way to live and and i can say this that the family members have carried on that that uh, that generosity and philanthropy that same philosophy that, that mrs king had she was really the one that fostered those those uh, wishes and, and you didn't do it just because you were rich she wasn't doing it to to give something that would have her name on it or captain king's name she she gave things because she saw that it was going to benefit the community. She was all about the community. She was all about the people. Very very a wonderful lady. Going back a little bit, when the land was purchased, how much land was purchased? What was the site? You know what 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 did he pay for it? You know, just like I always think that's very interesting when you you understand what that is, and then also like from there, how did it scale to what it is today? You know, it's it's interesting because when Captain King bought his first piece of property in in 1852, 1853, South Texas was a was a patchwork of of old Mexican and Spanish land grants. Obviously, until the the Treaty of of uh, Guadalupe de, de Hidalgo was was signed in 1848, the border uh, the disputed border of, of of Texas and Mexico was either the Rio Grande or the Nueces River, which is a 140-mile difference. So that strip of land between the Nueces, where Corpus Christi is, and, and the Rio Grande was no man's land. It had been vacated by all the old haciendados, the, the, the Spanish rancheros that had, that had had those land grants uh, from the mid-1700s up until the uh, Texas Revolution in 1836. And those... those uh, Mexican uh, haciendados, they, they skedaddled when Santa Ana retreated, or Santa Ana's army retreated anyway. Uh, so that land was pretty well left uh, left vacant and, and owned by, you know, three generations of Mexicans and, and Spaniards, colonial Spanish, that had, that had inherited that land. So when Captain King started buying up that land, he he had to go into Mexico and search out the owners of these of these large Spanish and Mexican land grants. And I say Spanish and Mexican because up until 1810, when Mexico won their independence in 1810 from Spain, prior to 1810, they were Spanish land grants given by the King of Spain. After 1810 to 1835, they were Mexican land grants. So Captain King bought some of both. You know, Captain King was was uh, he was a smart man, and and he know, knew how to found, find the land, and he knew how to do it. But he had good lawyers that that would that would help him make sure that he had clear title too. So his first piece of the first piece of property he bought, he bought in partnership with a with a, a old Texas Ranger that he had he had become acquainted with on the border named Gideon Lewis, Gideon uh, Legs Lewis, and uh, they bought a fifteen thousand five hundred acre. Mexican land grant, the Rincon de Santa Gertrudis, which was uh, really the center of the Rincon. The original Rincon is where the city of Kingsville is right mm -hmm. now. Right after that, uh, they, they bought a second land grant called the uh, uh, Santa Gertrudis de la Garza. 
and that was and that was a Spanish land grant that, that had been that had been ranched uh, up until uh, about 1835, and there were still there was still a semblance of a headquarters. There were still some wells there uh, on on that property. So Captain King's original ranch that he called the Rancho de Santa Gertrudis, not King Ranch. It wasn't King Ranch until after Captain King died. It was Rancho de Santa Gertrudis. Uh, was about 68,500 acres. That's the center now of our headquarters in one of the four divisions of King Ranch, the Santa Gertrudis Division. Uh, the reason that he was so attracted to that piece of land was because there was a spring-fed creek that ran right through that Spanish land grant, the, uh, the uh, De La Garza, and it was the only fresh water you gotta you gotta put put your head around this from corpus christi to brownsville wow 140 miles it was the only fresh water in that entire stretch wow. of land that that part of texas at that time was called the desert of the dead or the wild horse desert it was a barren sandy rough land with with potholes that would catch a little water when it when you have infrequent rains, but otherwise, it, it was it was barren. It was, uh, but but it is good cattle country, and it grows grass. As Michael knows, it's also one of the greatest wildlife habitats in in the United States of America, if not the world. But uh, no, Captain King's original original uh, the nucleus of his ranch was at sixty eight thousand acres, and Captain King continued to buy land. As a matter of fact, up until his death. In, in 1885, he bought 60 separate tracts of land. When he died, he owned 614,000 acres. Wow. And the family continued to build after that. They did. Put in perspective, Miss, un, under the management of Robert Clayburg, who married Mrs. King's youngest daughter, Alice, and managed the ranch up until uh, he died in 1832. They put together about a million two hundred fifty thousand acres in South Texas. Now a lot of that land was either was either sold or donated to the railroad, developed towns out of some of that land. So some of that land was taken away, and you know that would be a that'd be a whole different episode just to talk about the land sales and swaps and town developments and 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 what happened to all of that and where it went down. But now. The ranches, again, uh, in Texas, and the, the home ranches are, are about 825, 830,000 acres. We've added a few more acres here and there. Bob, before we get into the expansion of the King Ranch, um, really globally, because I think that's another interesting portion of all of this, another foresight that the family had that I think is worth mentioning, and certainly... Mundy and Ido and Wirma and myself spend a lot of time thinking about this because, you know, in our company, really our only asset is our employees, our, our associates. And so we spend a lot of time making sure that they understand that. Back then, knowing that this was kind of no man's land, they were going to have to have some pretty good people to protect it, to run it, to grow it, to make it all work. So talk about that whole family dynamic outside of the King family that they've created and maintained until this day with the employees of the King Ranch. Yeah, great, great story. And you got to back up a little bit on that too. Captain King, when he, when, when he bought the first land grant, when he bought his 68,000 acres, he had his partner, the old ranger, Gideon Lewis, 
who uh, uh, put together a, a, a ranger company and went and camped on that on that creek and camped on that land that they were in the process of buying to hold it and protect it because obviously that was a that that country was pretty wild at that time. The Comanches, the Nippon Apaches, lots of lots of wandering uh, old uh, conscripts from the Mexican War that were still running through that country and. Uh, you know, you can, I don't know if you remember some of those old old Westerns of the old days talking about the Nueces Strip and all of these things. That was the Nueces Strip. It was it was rough land. It was no man's land. But but Captain King and and, and Gideon Lewis put a ranger company on, on the spot. And then Captain King, when he came from the river, after he got the ink dried on on some of those uh, those titles to those to the lands, he he brought he really brought five men with him that became his his original employees on the ranch that, that really started to build their headquarters there at the ranch and and it was it was uh, you know kind of an early group of of, of diverse citizens there were there were Mexicans they were Anglo's uh, some were were uh, from across the border some were Tejanos which are which are are. American, Texas, Mexicans. Those five men worked for him. Captain King referred to him as his friends. He didn't include. He didn't. He didn't call them as employees. He said the, these men came and helped me start my ranch, and they were my friends. Uh, two of them were were, you know, they they were unflatteringly called gunmen. They were they were uh, two Anglo's. Uh, William Gregory and and James Santiago Richardson were two men that. James Richardson was Captain King's first head man. He didn't call him foreman or manager. He called him his head man. Uh, so he had this group that started to develop the, the headquarters there at, uh, at Santa Gertrudis. Remarkably enough, in this vast rangeland of South Texas, <clears throat> it was covered up with wild Mustang horses. But uh, there were very few cattle left in that part of the world. There weren't wild cattle there at that time. The, the old Spanish cattle that had been turned loose pretty much had been gathered up and killed and, and uh, by, by some of those old hide peelers that had come up through that country and, and decimated those cattle herds. So Captain King was looking to buy cattle and looking to find cattle. And, and in that effort in 1853, he went into northern Mexico. Northern Mexico was suffering one of the many droughts that we always suffer in South Texas, and he went into to, uh, Take advantage of, of uh, some of those ranchers and rancheros that they were that were selling their 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 uh, assets, and so he went to a little town called Creus in, in northern Mexico, and and uh, he bought every every uh, head of livestock, horses, oxen, goats, pigs, and cattle from the people that lived in that town, and and as he uh, started to head north. I don't know who it was, but I think it was probably a, a man by the name of Vicente Pitino that was one of his original hands uh, said, well, you know, Captain, uh, these these people have been left with nothing. They, they, you, you've, you've bought their livelihood. And so he turned around and made an offer to those people to come north with him. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, a hundred plus of those of those towns people uh, uh, took up the offer and and uh, they traveled north to Santa Gertrudis and, and what we uh, what we call the the Entrada de los Caninos. The, these people came uh, in in 1853 54 to King Ranch. Captain King 
built homes for them, gave them jobs. They uh, were known as, as the Quineños, which is translated as King's people. There are six generation Quineños that still work for King Ranch today. It's been a, so again, cool. when you, when you talk about uh, secession planning, it's not just succession and family planning, but it's succession and employee planning. That's what you guys and, and what we're more more uh, adept in is, is who's going to follow behind us. But he mm-hmm. he did the whole thing. <clears throat> Captain King had developed a, a his his ranching philosophy was was built around the the uh, the hacienda system of of Mexico and Spain rather than the what I'll call the plantation system of the South. He hired people, built homes for them, had them come and live on the ranch, work for him, raise their families there, offered them and, and gave them everything that they needed. And, and they became part of that community. The, the ranch became a community. It became a town. And, and that was just not something that, that, that was done very much. In the South, obviously, there were, there were plantation owners that, that, that had hired hands that were either se- seasonal or it was, it was slave labor. Uh, so Captain King's, his, his method, his business plan was, was a whole lot different and it was very successful and, and probably was the first, uh, ranching entity. They, they talk about King Ranch and, and Bob, for your interest, they, we, we are known as the, as the birthplace of American ranching. And the reason part of that is because of that, of that, uh, system that Captain King put in where he, built a community, had full-time hands that took care of, of his ranch and did that. But it was, uh, the Quineños, uh, were, were just as much a part of, of, of the, of the culture and, and society of King Ranch as the family members were. They, they, uh, they worked, you know, shoulder to shoulder through the generations and still do, uh, I, I, you know, when I went to the ranch, I had no preconceived notions that I was going to be a Quineño because I was not a Quineño. I was a hired hand. Uh, the Quineños were a separate group of people. Mm-hmm. They were generational employees that had been there since the, that, who, whose grandparents or great grandparents or great, great, great grandparents had been there, you know, and came, came through there. And we, we, we held them in, 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 in quite a great level, regardless of what their position was on the ranch. They they were they had a different status than anybody else, and and in my opinion, still do today. Mm-hmm. And how many today? When that was that look like today? The employee base that's that's helping on this ranch. It, it's no secret that that uh, uh, just just because of of uh, you know cost and 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 profits that that you know you we operate with a we don't operate with a thousand cowboys anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, King Ranch is, is operating with 50 or 60 cowboys in that 825,000 acres. Now, that's not the entire. It takes more than just cowboys to run a ranch, obviously. Right. Uh, you know, it takes it, it takes all the entities. We we not only uh, ranch 825,000 acres, but we also dry dry land farm 60,000 acres, which is wow. in, in, a, in a single in a single uh, piece of land. So it, it takes a lot of moving parts, but but. Uh, now King Ranch is is more than just ranching; it's agribusiness in in general, and and we we're in the retail business, and we have some other other operations in that way. But but from the ranching side, uh, 
yeah, it's it, we're we're certainly downsized to a great degree, and, mm-hmm. and the, and the uh, management and such as that is a lot different than it was. They, you know, obviously through the years you bring in outsiders, you bring in new blood, you bring in new ideas, you bring mm-hmm. in new thoughts, and that's that's another that's another part of King Ranch's uh, legacy and 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 uh, uh, part of their history is is uh, is innovation, which mm-hmm. is is. The innovation of King Ranch again would would take a would take a an episode of the climb just to talk about because starting with Captain King all the way through the the modern visionaries that are there today that are that are that are doing things and making things happen worldwide industry wide uh, it's just it's just remarkable that's and that's that has been that's been something that the that the family members whether they were directly involved in operations or not shareholders. Uh, have embraced the that 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 innovative part that 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 you know it's it's about research it's about it's about what we can do better that's going to benefit us here in South Texas and benefit the world in general and that wow. goes back to you know the, the probably the most obvious part of that would be Bob Clayberg and and you talked about Michael the, the expansion worldwide. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, some of the the innovations that that went on he was a he he had an incredible scientific mind and he he you know did lots of things not all of them successful it would be hard to do this day and time but he did it he he uh, he got it done and did many incredible things but that that's been that's been another part of king ranch that was just uh just made it something that that i, I wanted to be a part of and and i was just so blessed and honored to to be a part of it and and what you know, when I went to King Ranch, I wasn't a historian. I loved history, and I loved and I loved Texas, and I knew I knew about everybody in Texas. I say everybody, not everybody now, uh, but you know, we know King Ranch is part of us. But but when I got down there and had the opportunity to uh, to really immerse myself in the history and and, and the culture of King Ranch, I, I I just couldn't get enough, and I still to this day can't get enough because we learn something new every day about our history. And, and uh, uh, our history changes. I mean, we're not we're not static. We're not telling everybody this is our story. What I wrote in that book, Michael, that's already changed. Mm-hmm. So, ten years, you look at what I wrote, and they're going to say, you know, he he made a mistake. What he said there, that's okay with me. I find mistakes all the time, but you know what? That's that's what we're you know research and and exploration. That's what it's all about. Well, Bob, pivot for a second on that that sort of innovation thought. And where I want to kind of start is, you know, you mentioned the foresight they had in estate planning and keeping the family holdings and the family together. And certainly a big catalyst in that ability was the introduction of oil and gas leases. Yes. And then you really from yes. there had the formation of King Ranch Inc. And much more of a formal board, and I'm jumping around a little bit, but kind of right. take us take us yeah. from that point, and that obviously created a new um, economic driver that then allowed them to expand out of Texas, get into uh, racing horses, like just right. take us out right. from there, and then we'll bring it back in. If you go back to when Captain King died, things started to get into high gear and change. And I talked about Robert Clayberg Sr., who who married the, the youngest daughter of the Kings. Um, uh, Robert and Alice Clayberg had five children, too. And, and uh, 
those five children of Robert and Alice Clayburgh and their, their, their time, he, uh, I, I told you, he took over, they married in 86, he died in 32. Uh, they had five children also. The five children, the, the five children of Robert and Alice Clayburgh were the five original shareholders in King Ranch Incorporated. Up, up, and, up until Mrs. King died in 1925, she was the sole owner of King Ranch. Owned every every horse, every cow, every every house, every asset on the ranch, and all the land. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, she had the she had the uh, she along with Robert Clayburg, who I told you before was a lawyer, uh, developed a, a a plan, and 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 the plan was when she died that it, it was it was important to hold the ranch together. So as in in that in that way to in, in their estate planning. Uh, they they determined to hold the uh, uh, hold the ranch land and, and and all the assets and trust for ten years after she died, so the family could work work their way through this situation. Understand now there was only one living child of of Richard and Henrietta King still living, and that was little Alice. The other siblings had died, but there were a lot of grandchildren. And some great grandchildren living, so that estate was going to be scattered around. Uh, and Mrs. King left everybody in in the will the way they they should be. Uh, and and so just to, just to sum it up through that ten year period, uh, Robert and, and Alice Clayburg were were able to uh, to establish King Ranch Incorporated with their five children and. Uh, Hold the land that they had inherited, as well as buying a considerable amount of the of the historic King Ranch uh, that had been uh, inherited by other family members. So uh, they were able to keep the nucleus of the ranch and 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 buy most of the rest of those those shareholders out. Uh, one of the consequences of of uh, Mrs. King's death. And, and, and at the time she died, she was probably one of the wealthiest persons in the United States, if not the wealthiest in Texas, was there were estate taxes, mm-hmm. and they were exorbitant. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, well over a million dollars in, in, in estate taxes were owed by, by the family when she died. And you got to understand, they made a living off of, off of ranching. And, and ranching was, uh, you know, they owned a lot of land and, and they, they, they had lots of assets, but, but you know, uh, liquid assets might have been a little harder to come by. There had been some oil exploration in South Texas prior to, uh, in, the, in, the, in the 20s. Uh, there had even been a, 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 a small lease and a, and a small move made to lease part of King Ranch in the 20s. Nothing that was really formal. But... Uh, in 1933, before while the while the ranch was still in trust, uh, Bob Clayburgh, the son of uh, of Robert and Alice, and at that time the manager of King Ranch, he negotiated uh, a, an oil lease of the entire ranch with uh, with Humble Oil Company. Uh, that's 1933. That was when the first major lease was was established with Humble Oil. Uh, one of the benefits of that lease was the down payment on that lease paid the estate taxes. You know, when you talk about good estate planning, you, you got to talk about you know that it 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 
it's kind of a systematic plan. You kind of put together a plan, but there's a lot of unknowns, mm -hmm. like state taxes that you may not think about. But, you know, you got to have a lot of luck there, too. And they did. Opportunity and luck came into, into play there, and, and uh, uh, they they had the money to pay those estate taxes and, and to uh, move forward with, uh, with King Ranch Incorporated. The first, the first oil well was, was drilled on King Ranch in 1939, I believe, 1939. And it was drilled on the San Antonio Viejo Ranch, which is, is not the, that land is not owned by, by the, by the King Ranch family today. It's owned by, by cousins. Uh, but, that was the first well, the Colorado well, they called it. And it came in and it came in big. And and the rest going forward was history after that. Uh, obviously, there was lots of oil and gas uh, under under the under the land on King Ranch. They made considerable amount of money off of that. And and they uh they applied a lot of that money back into the land and back into the operations. And a lot of that money that was made was put into some of the innovations that came about and, and buying additional lands uh, uh, across across South Texas and, and into those foreign properties. So from 1935 going forward, King Ranch Incorporated was was the managing entity of, of the King Ranches uh, with, with Bob Playburg. There were there were there were five children. There were two there were two sons, Bob Clayburg, and the and the oldest child was uh, was Congressman Richard Clayburg, who was a, who was a seven term U.S. congressman in Washington, a, a wonderful flamboyant man that that was uh, uh, did so many great things uh, while he was in Congress, and and, and then Bob Clayburg was was the youngest boy, and the, the second of the youngest child, and, and was was ranching from the day that he started full speed ahead and, and pretty well destined to to, uh, to run the operations. Uh, three daughters, Alice uh, Clayburg East, uh, another big ranching family, the East family of South Texas. She married uh, Tom East. Uh, uh, Sarah, Sarah Spawn Clayburg, who died young, uh, uh, and uh, Henrietta Rosa Clayburg, uh, Larkin Armstrong, uh, and she was. Uh, they were the three, the three uh, daughters. So the so the 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 owners of King Ranch today, the shareholders of King Ranch today, are are all descendants of four of those five original shareholders in King Ranch going forward into those eight generations. Uh, the East family, uh, they they. They were bought out of, of King Ranch, and they have their own ranching operations in South Texas, as I said. So, four of the five children those those are the uh, those are the shareholders and owners of King Ranch today. And Bob, if you know this, at, at the height of the the sort the we'll call it the global reach of the King Ranch, how many acres did they own when you factor in? I think there was citrus farming in Florida, there were some holdings in maybe Australia, South America, et cetera. Yeah, well, and there still is. We still, we still farm uh, 60,000 acres in Florida, and, and we have, we have uh, uh, pistachio farms in California. That, you, you know, uh, the, the foreign property, the, the, 
that that really started in, in the purchasing of foreign properties was started by Bob Kleberg in, in 1952. He purchased land in Cuba and land in Australia. Uh, when you say how much land did they have, you know, not all was owned land, but with the lease land they had in, in Australia was close to 10 million acres. Wow. Uh, they introduced the San Gertrudis cattle to, to Australia. You mm -hmm. go to Australia today and all you see is red cattle. Those, yep. those, those are all descendants of, of the original King Ranch cattle that came to Australia in 1952. Actually, some of those cattle had come earlier than they started buying land in Australia. Cuba was a, was a, a, a wonderful operation. Probably that, probably the most profitable foreign operation that King Ranch had was the ranch in Cuba. And, and, uh, we know what happened to that. It was obviously nationalized by Castro. As I always say, when we talk about the foreign properties that we used to own, we don't talk about Cuba because we still own Cuba. King Ranch still owns Cuba. They just took it away. So maybe <laughs> one of these days something will happen and, and they'll give it back. There still is a King Ranch in Cuba. You can Google King Ranch Cuba and you can see they, they, they still, the Communist Party did something over there and they have it. But, wow. but it was a great operation. King Ranch was selling, was selling uh, bulls to uh, farmers and ranchers in Cuba in the 1930s. Uh, so it was, uh, that, that was, a, that was an operation. And, and really a lot of what happened when they moved to Florida and they bought the, the Florida operations in the 60s, uh, in, in the 70s, uh, a, a lot of those, a lot of those individuals and in, in, came north into Florida from, from Cuba and helped run those operations up there. But, but, uh, from there, they, they bought properties in South America, in, in uh, Brazil and Argentina and Venezuela, large operations down there in, uh, uh, in, in partnership with Swift and company in some cases, and in part, partnership, obviously, with locals in the area. Uh, they, they, uh, they ran those operations for years and years. Those were some of the last operations, the, uh, the, the Argentina, Venezuela, and the, and the uh, Australian operations were the last operations that were sold in the, in the uh, 80s. But uh, uh, the, the operations in, in, in South America, it, it was, you know, it, it was kind of a, a political situation there that, that really led to the downfall of, of that. Australia was was a was a massive operation with with a massive footprint and, and a massive impact on on the on the agricultural operations in in, uh, in in that part of the world. The last operations they bought were in in Morocco and Spain. Those those operations were kind of at the tail end of, of the foreign properties. They they all of the operations were eventually sold. You know, you just trying to manage those properties. But, I, but I'll say, let me back up just a little bit and, say, and, and tell you really the reason. This, this was Bob Clayberg's, um, this, this was what his thought process was. He, he wanted to deliver beef around the world. He saw the need for, for that protein to be amongst the people everywhere. And he just, saw, he just, he just thought, well, we, we can do it. We've got, the, we've got the wherewithal to do that and buy land and go into these partnerships. and and organize these things. It just was so massive that it was almost uh, uncontrollable mm -hmm. uh, with foreign partners and, 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 and national partners and all of this. It was, it was just, uh, it, it was just incredible. But for whatever 
good, bad, or indifferent that happened in those the, those uh, those foreign operations. The good part of it was that they continued with that with that process of innovation, with that philosophy of innovation, and and what they left in those countries. You there's there is still an impact from King Ranch in those countries, whether the land was nationalized eventually, whether it was taken over by by locals, whatever happened. Uh, they they left they they did just what a good steward says you know you always say that we we want to leave it better for the next generation than it was for us that's stewardship that's mm-hmm. what you want to do that's part of our philosophy that has been eight generations of, of stewardship in that philosophy so that's what they did they were good stewards they left that land better than it was when they found it and obviously worth a lot more than it was when they bought it so it, it was it was a, a, a pretty remarkable adventure uh, for for uh, uh, Bob Clayburgh to undertake. Uh, he he was definitely a man that that had uh, he had so much energy that that and, and did so many things. He he was he was a lot like Captain Kane. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know when they slept. <laughs> I don't know how they could get so much done in so little time. I just don't understand how people can do that and still manage to. Uh, to live a normal life and 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 uh, raise a family and 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 do do good things amongst the community, they did it all. Maybe it'd be harder to do that in this day and time, but uh, they got it done and got it done in a big way and left and left a pretty damn big footprint. All of this, like, there's so much good of this. Where some of the challenges are within, you know, this long thing, everything couldn't have been perfect, right? What are some of the challenges that the family's gone through? I, I think the I, I think the family itself is the challenge. Um, I mean, you know, we all we you know I, I've I've got three daughters and three son-in-laws and seven grandchildren and 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 you know in a pretty simple life with their challenges that are involved there. Just think about having to manage the challenges they have with a with a with a family that now is is uh, is pretty detached and dealing with the with the jealousies and the and the and and. Marriages and divorces and everything that you do—that's that's the biggest challenge. What I what I think that that how one way that King Ranch has has been able to to manage some of those issues has been has been to to instill in in the family members the importance of 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 family and culture and what they have and and that. It's not because of them. It's because of somebody that had it before you, and and it's not because of you. It's going to be what you're going to do with it when you pass it forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 was a lot of what what my job was when I was there. I had a, a, a the chairman of of our board during the, the time that I was in active operations with Jamie Clement, and, and he was uh, he was such a, a wonderful mentor for me, and and uh, he he really knew the importance of immersing family members in the history and, and the culture of, of their ranch and, and their their family assets. Because, uh, you know, there are not many of King descendants that are still living in Kingsville, Texas. Mm-hmm. They're all over the place. You know, we don't have any in Chicago, but we've got them in the Northeast. We've got them in the West. We've got them in the Midwest. We've got them in every big city in Texas. And, and just... Very few of them that are living in South Texas now. So, 
we've got a we've got a group of shareholders that are pretty well detached from the ranch, and and they've got an operation that's being run by a bunch of outsiders that they've entrusted to carry on carry on uh, uh, you know their mission and their vision. Yeah, and and uh, uh, you know I think that that's part of it. Bring outsiders like me in there that uh, understand the importance of, of family and understand the importance of that 170 years that that uh, have have where we what we are in, in in that part of the history and to be a part of that going forward. I, you know, there've been man, I'll tell you what. You know, to say there there haven't been issues. I mean, I mean, and they're they're uh, you know they're part of common knowledge. You know, people it's it's a record that there were family members that that determined that they wanted to sell out, and they did. And and uh, uh, King Ranch took a big hit financially when that happened. They had to buy family members out. They had to, mm-hmm. they had to uh, to do, but they did it. And 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 you know, with good good business. Uh, ethics and tactics they they uh they move forward and and they they made the most of it and they they pulled themselves up and they and, and they carried on so uh, you know just I, I mean i go back to every time every time there's a transition at king ranch I, I mean i always said this when i studied history i looked at all the transitions and i would and i would i would chronicle the the transitions and and the good and the bad of each transition and, you know, I always said to family members, I said, you know, all the transitions were good eventually because they brought in new blood. They brought in new thoughts. They capitalized on what had, had been done before, and but improved on the old things and, 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 and moved that forward. So mm-hmm. there, there are always issues. That, I mean, you've got upwards to 200 shareholders in King Ranch today. And and uh, that's that's a that's a massive number of fam- family members, cousins, nieces, nephews, grandchildren. Th- to to keep keep your arms around. Another thing that we do uh, is is we and this may sound real simple and, and kind of dumb simple to you, but we we have and, and have since uh, since 1963, we have a family camp every summer. Mm-hmm. And wow. it's not just a normal family camp. It is a every every family member, every shareholder in King Ranch, and their children, and their and their in laws, and and whoever come to the ranch and spend close to ten days, and and we we put on the biggest event that you can imagine. Uh, it, it's 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 centered uh, with our with our annual shareholders meeting, mm-hmm. but. Uh, they get to they get to spend time. They're they're at the main house. They're all staying together. They're all eating together. They're seeing people they they've never seen. They're seeing new children they've never seen. They they laugh. They cry. They have a good time. It brings them together and and, and makes them really understand more and more. And they're down there year round. I mean, we've got family. You know, you go down to the main house right now, Michael. You know, there are family members there every week of every year. Uh, they the, the the shareholders of King Ranch still still maintain the 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 old family main house right, uh, which is a, a is a is a large house obviously, but that's that's their that's their uh, ancestral home and they all come back to it. So, man, the challenges are are, are daily. But uh, again, I, I think it, it you know you get to the point that 
they talk about today these these uh, uh, these banks. You know, the big banks they're they're too they're too big to fail. You know, when you get as big as as King Ranch has got to the point, maybe maybe they're getting too big to fail. Nobody everybody's nobody wants it to fail now. We've come this far. We've come 170 years. Let's keep it going. But you know, I'm 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 that's that's my wish. <laughs> I have nothing to do with that. <laughs> Well, Bob, I think it's always good historical or perspective to get from a lifelong historian. Uh, I think Weirman and I are big believers in, you know, you you can't understand what's going to happen next if you don't understand what happened to get you there. So I know historians spend a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror, looking out the, the windshield. What does the King Ranch look like 100 years from now? You know, I can I can't tell you what it will look like. I can tell you what I hope it looks like, and I hope the home ranch is still there. Mm-hmm. I think that that's that's a a, a part of, of Texas and a part of of, of uh, the United States that that is so important. Uh, it, it is a it is a national landmark. It's a it's a uh, again it's it's a it's a relatively untouched habitat. That, that is so in, important environmentally, and, mm-hmm. and uh, that that I hope that it's still there. I, I I I know with each generation, it becomes more difficult in any in any operation that you're in. Uh, you guys are part of a family operation there, and so you know a lot about about that sort of thing. Uh, so you know, it's really hard to say because with each. I think I think the key is is to continue to uh, to keep the family involved to the extent that they're involved now in, in understanding their their uh, their history, their heritage, uh, their culture, uh, that that community that, that they built and, and that they uh, they're maintaining today. Uh, to understand that that uh, the value of that land. Uh, is not as great as the value of their family and mm-hmm. uh, the importance of, of, of what King Ranch is, what it has been and what it will be going forward. Because a hundred years from now, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what ranching and, and, and properties are going to look like anyway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's just hard to say. Um, we seem to be changing rapidly uh, these days and, and, we're we're losing we're losing we're losing touch. I think with with uh, some of the old ways and some of the old traditions that we need to we need to be a little bit more in tune with. And, and we're trying to erase a lot of our history that that uh, is not good. I can I, I always I always tell people that that uh, we 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 don't try to change our history. A lot of it's bad. A lot of it's not not appropriate for the way that we live today, but we understand that. And again, I think that we've we've uh, and I say we as part of being part of King Ranch. That's the way we put it. I'm, I don't own King Ranch, but I'm I'm one of the we. I'm part of King Ranch, so we we, we talk about ourselves as the community, the the, the community. But uh, you know, we we recognize the the good and the bad, and and we learn from from all of it. And, and, and move forward with it. And I think that, you know, I mean, it's tried to say now because a lot of smart people are saying that we can't erase our history. We can't change what happened. Uh, we can we can exacerbate it and make it worse and, and, and try to forget about it. Well, that that serves that serves no one. 
it, it, it's really sad because we, we, you know, in this day and time, we, we tend to, we tend to, when we talked about the Texas Monthly articles and things like that, there have been good ones, there have been bad ones as far as is, uh, is how it might affect our reputation. But, uh, you know, there's just so much out there that people want to know and they want to, they, they want to accentuate the, the negative rather than the positive. And, and, uh, you know, they'd rather they'd rather know what what bad things Captain King did rather than what good things he did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, my gosh, he was he he was he was a land grabber. He was a, some people would have called him a pirate. He he was an opportunist. He lived in an era of manifest destiny. He he and he lived that life. He, he was a businessman. He was an entrepreneur. He 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 didn't live by the same. Uh, societal uh, mores that we live today, you know, our, the, the business ethics of those days were a lot different than they are today. But, uh, but, but look what, look what he, look at the foundation that he built and the benefits that that foundation has, has carried forward through the years. You know, that's what people don't recognize. They say, what, you know, let's talk about the negative, but let's, let's think about, you know, how that, how that uh, evolved into such a positive. And, and most of them do. So, I, I think that that uh, again, as as long as is uh, is the family can can understand that part of it and and the importance of their of, of their family love and their culture and their history, I think it, it can go on to in, in some way, shape, or form. I hope so anyway. Yeah. So, Bob, pivoting back to to your life and the time that we have left together. Um, I want to take you back to some summers in the 50s and 60s on Hillcrest Drive in Richmond, Texas, and running into families like the Robinowitzes, the Wessendorfs, and the Moors. Well, you, you know, this is how our our, uh, our introduction started with with uh, talking about my history with with uh, your grandfather Elmer Moore and, and and your family, and and you know. What what made me uh, to get to this point, and I think have a very successful life, and, and success isn't measured with money that I made or anything else, but it's the children I raised and the friends that I have and the people that I impacted in one way or another. Uh, you know, I had so many people that I that, that that mentored me and that I looked up to that I wanted to I wanted to be like, I wanted to emulate, I wanted to you know I saw what they did. I didn't see what they had. I saw what they did. Mm-hmm. I saw the I, I saw the friends that they they made. I saw the the connections they had. Hilmer Moore was was one of those guys. I was I, 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 my best friend in Austin uh, was was the grandson of a of an old Richmond citizen, uh, Glenn Birdwell, honey and daddy Glenn Birdwell that lived right there next to the Rabinowitzes on Hillcrest, right there on the corner. Mm-hmm. Right down the street from the big, the big white house of the Moors, and uh, you know, I would go and spend summers down there with them, and, and I got to know them, and 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 it just it was so funny because again, Texas is such such a small place, and uh, the way that we all kind of come back together so many times, but it just seemed like that original connection from Richmond and 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 meeting the Moors, meeting Mister Mister Hilmer Moore just carried on through my life. I, 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 I went into, into ranching and, and, uh, uh, became involved in, in the Texas and Southwestern Cattle Racers Association around the time that, that Mr. Moore was president of that organization. And, and, 
and and was so so impactful to the to the uh, cattle industry in Texas. And, and I wanted to be like him then. And I listened to what he said. And then I went into the next phase of my life at King Ranch, and and up jumps the devil. There's there's Hilma Moore, <laughs> a, a board member of King Ranch. <laughs> and, and I and you know I, you just you just want to stop and go go. You know this is this is. This is more than coincidence. Yeah, I think I think there was there was somebody that was leading me, a higher being that was leading me through that. But but it was people like Hilma Moore that had such an impact on me. My father was one that was like like Mister Moore had had friends everywhere he went and had connections and put me in in the right place at the right time when I needed them. And and I still to this day go go places and, and I'll introduce myself as Bob Canan. And he said, they'll go, you know, I knew a Bob Canan. These guys are real old now. You got to understand. So <laughs> I know Bob Canan. I, I said, but you know, I said, no, that was my father. But you know, he was a banker and, and said, but anyway, you know, I, the, the, the people that, that impacted my life, are, are, you know, from the, from, from Oscar Tolliver and Santos Ramirez, there were, there were old cowboys that I worked with in South Texas to, to Helma Moore, to, to uh, uh, you know Jack Hunt, Robert Underbrink, Jamie Hunt, these these people at King Ranch, the the Toddy Lee Wynn going back, I I I just seem to 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 fall in with such a great crowd of people, and and I I just I always wanted to be like them. I always I, I always just wanted to be like them uh, in the way that you know they they were they were. They had good business ethics. They 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 were men of strong character and women of strong character, and and uh, uh, they had friends everywhere they went. And you can always judge somebody by the number of friends they have. And I that that again that that's that's an old saying. But boy, I tell you, it, it is. The older you get, the more you know that because mm-hmm. uh, uh, it's it's a you just you just can't imagine in a in a state as small as Texas is. How many friends you run into everywhere you go? Real uh, important. I was, I was blessed by your grandfather. I can tell you that he he was a and a, and and no man loved the quail hunt better than that man did, and no <laughs> and nobody liked fried shrimp better than that man did. I, I've never seen a man eat fried shrimp at the king at the king's end. I asked him one time. We were at King's End eating shrimp. We'd go and we'd hunt quail, and then he'd say, let's go to King's End and eat shrimp. So we wouldn't get there until about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I asked him, I said, Mr. Morris, I said, what do you like better, fried shrimp or hunting quail? And he said, he said I can't answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> what a great man he was. Thank you so much. He always had wonderful yes. things to say about you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Bob and I uh, started this podcast a couple of years ago because of our passion for telling stories and delivering truth through this new medium that we now know as podcast. And your passion for history uh, and the life that you've lived is is a perfect example of why we're passionate about doing this podcast. And so we can't thank you enough for coming on. One of the uh, the ways that we end the podcast is with a relatively simple question, but it doesn't always necessarily have a simple answer. And, you know, with, with three daughters, with three son-in-laws and seven grandkids, you know, we say uh, that the saying is that it's not necessarily what you know, it's who you know. And then we flip it around and say, it's not necessarily who you know, but who knows you. 
And so using this, this medium, this podcast as a platform to answer that question, what do you want people to know about you? Wow. I've, I've just been a fortunate son. It's been a good life. It's been a, it's been a, 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 a life that's been successful in every way. I can't think of, of, of a better way to have lived my life. Uh, you know, I took advantage of opportunities that, uh, that, that some people thought might be a little crazy at the time, but, uh, they worked out with the help of, of good people. And, uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, uh, I'm, I'm kind of an eternal optimist. I, I'm, I'm not scared to try something, but I'm not greedy. I just, I just, uh, I let things come as they will. My, my daddy once told me, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, when, when I was young and I was bouncing around jobs and I was, I was probably making a buck and a quarter an hour working at these jobs. And I, I, you know, I'd, I'd go to him one time and I said, I said, dad, you know, I've been working for this, this, this man for, for a year now and he's never given me a raise and he's really not, not paying me enough. And, and, I, and, you know, I, I just don't know. I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to ask for a raise or I'm going to have to quit. He said, well, let me, let me tell you what he said. Uh, he said, don't ever ask for a raise and don't ever threaten to quit. He said, if you do a raise, it's going to come. And if it doesn't come and you want to go and find something else to do, go ahead and quit, but don't make threats and don't expect too much because it'll come to you if you do the right thing. And it worked out for me. It doesn't all the time, but I happened to work for people that it did. Usually when I thought I needed a raise, all of a sudden it would come along and I'd get one. Again, I, I wasn't greedy, and I think that, that uh, uh, I, I, I've always loved to work, and I've always loved the people I work for, and every one of them have had a wonderful impact on my life. Unbelievable answer. Such great perspective from somebody that's definitely seen life from a lot of different angles. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you. Really thank enjoyed you. it. I've I, I enjoyed it. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.